Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As you are very likely aware, uh, if you're listening to this particular podcast, that is, last week, the Supreme Court heard two cases regarding internet platforms, specifically YouTube and Twitter, and looking at their liability with regards to terrorist attacks and terrorist groups potentially using their platforms. Uh, The cases were a little bit strange, I think, in how they were set up. Uh, But the reason that there was so much interest in them was that specifically in one of the cases, in the Gonzalez versus Google case, it raised a question about the boundaries of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And this was the first time in all these years that the Supreme Court has had a chance to really weigh in on Section 230 and what the boundaries are and what it means. Given that there is a ton of misunderstanding uh, about 230, uh, an awful lot of which I would argue is just misplaced anger uh, about Section 230, the fear was that one of or that these two cases combined might open up an opportunity for the Supreme Court to effectively rewrite decades of what people have believed the law to mean, and that would have a very, very significant impact on the internet. As regular readers of TechTurt and listeners of the podcast will know, uh, our organization, the Copia Institute, filed an amicus brief in the case, uh, along with Chris Riley, who runs his own Mastodon instance, and Engine, uh, which is an organization that represents the interests of startups. We wanted to make sure that the justices understood specifically that Section 230 isn't just about protecting big tech one of the myths around Section 230, and how these changes might impact small organizations or even individuals such as Chris. Uh, There has been a lot of commentary on what happened in the court last week, but I figured it would be best to have on actual experts. So we have two of them. Uh, We have lawyer Kathy Gellis, who wrote our amicus brief and who's been on the podcast before and writes for us on TechTurt. And we have Jess Myers, the Legal Advocacy Counsel at the Chamber of Progress. Uh, Both of them attended the Gonzalez hearing in person last week while I uh, remained off the internet and avoided everything to do with it. Uh, And they also listened to the related uh, Tamna versus Twitter case. Uh, which raises some similar but slightly different issues, which we will be discussing. So uh, welcome to both of you to the podcast. And Kathy, I'm going to start with you. And even though I assume that most people listening to the podcast have some awareness of Section 230, I thought it might be useful just for framing the discussion to give a really quick, the sort of sort of 30-second version, recognizing that there are nuances and issues that we will get into during the podcast. But if you could give us the 30-second version of what is Section 230. The 30-second version of what is Section Section 230 is the general principle that whoever creates content online is, of course, totally responsible for the content they created, but not the service provider who helps it get expressed and go between one brain and one computer somewhere to another computer and other brains elsewhere. The internet only works when 
services are available to help expression move across from computer to computer, and it won't be legally safe for any service provider to provide that helping if they could potentially be in trouble for all of the expression they help their users make because it's not just one thing at one time. It is all the things at all the times from all the people using the service provider. And that's just way, way, way too much uh, for any service provider to potentially be on the hook for. And even just once could sometimes be too much. One instance of user expression may be too much. And then it also has a parallel companion bit to it, which is that ultimately Section 230 comes down to the congressional idea that we want the most good stuff on the internet, and so we need the helpers to make sure it gets there. And we want the least bad stuff on the internet, and we need the service providers to sort of help us call um, some of the really crappy things people use the internet for to make it that the internet overall has most of the best stuff and least of the non-best stuff. Um, and again, the service providers to do that job also need to be legally safe to be able to make those decisions and not fear that somebody's going to come after them for any or all of the decisions that they make. Very good. All right. And Jess, I'm going to turn it over to you to describe specifically what was the Gonzalez case about that was heard at the Supreme Court. Yeah, so the Gonzalez case was positioned throughout as um, being probably one of the biggest internet law cases that we've had in the past decades. And I, I think that, you know, even after the the arguments, I think that still reigns true, depending on how the opinion unfolds. Um, so the contentious question that's up for debate in the Gonzalez v. Google case for the for the court, and it has changed frequently, but I believe they the petitioners finally landed on um, whether Section 230, a law that empowers websites to host and display and moderate user content, as Kathy explained, um, covers algorithmic curation. It's interesting because the I'll talk a little bit about just the, the questions that were presented because again this, it is pretty uh, it is pretty interesting how much it's changed and I think also the original question is sort of why the the case was granted cert in the first place um, you know the original question in Gonzalez's petitioner sort of teed it up to, as does Section two thirty only apply to traditional editorial functions and that's an extremely broad question. I suspect that the court was eager to grant um, cert in this case based on the breadth of that question. There's a lot that, you know, there's a lot of discussion to be had um, um, under that question. And then it quickly shifted in the next brief from the petitioners to does Section 230 apply to recommendations, um, which narrows the question a little bit more until we finally get to their final, the petitioner's final brief where they're asking, again, um, does Section 230 apply to recommendations if those recommend recommendations are done algorithmically? Um, the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this is because I think, you know, we'll get into it, but I, I think it sort of explains why, you know, in the courtroom, the petitioner's attorney, Eric Schnapper, had a, I, I think had a lot of trouble sort of navigating that very thin question, very narrow question. Um, the facts of Gonzalez are, are tragic. Uh, it involves, you know, a family of a, of a victim of the 2015 Paris, Paris terrorist attacks, um, Nohemi Gonzalez, she was a, I believe, a 23-year-old uh, U.S. citizen studying abroad um, at the time of the attacks, and she was killed uh, during the uh, cafe attacks. Um, the family, the estate of, of Gonzalez is alleging that YouTube, uh, subsidiary of, of Google, is uh, uh, proximately caused or approximately caused the death of, of uh, Nohemi Gonzalez. Um, and they did that by 
recommending or or sort of showing what's next when it comes to ISIS content, allegedly ISIS content. I, I, I say allegedly because the actual Gonzalez complaint doesn't talk about what the videos at issue actually contained. So that's sort of how where we are now. You know, the court, they argued, they heard uh, oral arguments in the Gonzalez case on Tuesday of this past week. Um, and now we are waiting for an opinion. And so I think like some people are hearing this case and, and I, I've sort of heard two different reactions to it. And and so one is the reaction of, but wait, like there's no direct allegations that like the terrorists in question, you know, were inspired by YouTube or that like, it, it feels like there's, it's a very tenuous um, setup behind the whole case. And, and I think, so some people have reacted by hearing that and sort of, you know, finding the whole case very strange. And then on the other side, I'm hearing a lot of people and, and, and thoughtful people, you know, who, who are looking at this and saying like, well, wait, like, you know, why shouldn't there be liability if you're recommending terrorist content? And so those are sort of the two sort of like larger, like leaving aside the 230 issue. Those are the two things that I, that I keep hearing. And so I'm kind of curious, like, you know, from, from, from the two of you, like, do, do you think that those are reasonable viewpoints or reasonable ways of looking at the, this? The justices, I think, ultimately had the same question. I think you're echoing something that uh, Justice Sotomayor in particular was saying, which was, and I think it's a little hard to tell exactly what's going on with this case, but because this is shaped by the pleading, but did it matter? Does it matter? Did it matter in this case or does it matter in general if there was a specific video that somehow was a call to action that furthered a very specific act of terrorism? Or is the meaning of this case is that terrorist-like people had terrorist-like content and were using the internet to spread terrorist type of things to sort of organize themselves, encourage recruitment, um, and using the internet for terrorist advancing sorts of things. And if the platform had in any way amplified with their algorithmic recommendations, any of that general content, would that create a situation where there might be liability for the algorithm? Or if there is liability, does it also require it to be much more specific to any particular video? Or is the question, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what the situation is because there still should be no liability. I think um, as advocates here, we would take the position of it doesn't actually matter because this is still a te- too attenuated. Um, and this is not this is ultimately the thing that's wrongful is the content that is produced by people, the terrorists like people um, and not the platform itself. And that it doesn't really matter what's getting recommended it's still not content created by the platform. And so therefore 230 must and should apply according to its own language. Um, But I think there was some consideration of, and asking the petitioners, um, you know, the, the Gonzalez family of, okay, if you had a rule that could impose liability, what is your rule tied to? Is it a specific video? Is it a specific act? Is it or is it the general usage in general of terrorists of a platform? Because depending on what that rule would be, would have different effects if that was, uh, well, I think actually the effect would be terrible no matter what it came out to be and, and d- a problem for the internet by and large. But in theory, you could thread some needles depending on which that answer turned out to be. 
Yeah, Mike, I will say, I, I feel like um, what's missing in this conversation, or at least what's what's sort of been glossed over is the point that you've made, which is there's there's still a lot of questions that come up with the original complaint before we even got to the Supreme Court. Again, um, what was actually at the videos? A trust and safety expert actually recently pointed out to me last week, um, when you do a search for ISIS content on YouTube, which I may or may not recommend in my legal advice, but when, <laughs> when you do a search for ISIS content on YouTube, some of the first couple of pages of results is actually just news about ISIS um, or it's right. you know coverage from uh, interest groups that are wanting to show some of the atrocities. But she, you know, when she was doing that search, she didn't come into any, you know, sort of ISIS propaganda. And again, it goes back to the complaint. What was at those videos? They weren't described by the the Gonzalez family. The other interesting point, I think, uh, that that's also sort of been glossed over is, um, Kathy, I think you were trying to say this as well. Uh, ISIS claimed the attacks in, in, in the Paris terrorist attacks, but I don't think we've actually had any evidence that, you know, it was ISIS that perpetrated the attacks. Um, so again, it, it's these, these claims, they're, they're, you know, attaching it to an entity that we don't know actually contributed, that actually uh, perpetra- perpetrated the, uh, the attacks at issue. Um, and we're tr- also attributing it to video recommendations where we don't know what the content was that was actually at issue either. There's a whole bunch of assumptions that are baked into cases like these, and I think it's important to call them out because a lot is getting presumed that specific act, specific actor, and we all know and agree that these particular people are terrorists. The arguments in favor of liability tend to presume all of that, but all of that is actually something in question, even connected to this particular attack. It's just just pointed out, like, was it even ISIS who was actually responsible for this? Um, And then you get into other questions, because if you are going to have a rule where there could potentially be liability on a platform, if they help algorithmically or not algorithmically, a terrorist be able to speak online, well, okay, if if that could trigger liability, so the platform must not do it. How can they answer that? How can they know who was the terrorist? Um, There's a lot of assumptions that this is knowable, clear, and like we've got a list of the people and and you just here's the list and don't let any of these people use the Internet. But um, that's kind of a problem, like to the extent that we have a list, who ends up on the list? What are the due process problems? Do they really belong on that list? Or is this sort of like a government just sort of using its leverage to silence people it doesn't want to have speak anymore? Um, there's a lot of certainty baked into the argument that the platform should have liability. And we've been so busy talking about like, it would be bad if Section 230 was weakened, but I think it's important to also point out that there isn't that certainty. So a lot of the best arguments for weakening it are actually um, sort of hollow unto themselves, that they really presume way too much that what is wrong in the world that the platforms might be responsible to is in any way objectively knowable. It isn't. Yeah. And, and you know, there are a couple of points that I want to raise here, which is, you know, you, you point out Rightly, like there are questions about who who is labeled terrorist and who would be denied these services, and like you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, you yeah, know, that, that, that's that, that's not a big deal. But like the the famous the most famous example is that Nelson Mandela was listed by the U.S. as a terrorist until 2008, like long after he was freed and long after he was leading South Africa, uh, and and recognized sort of as a as a hero for for peace and and uh, you know he was still labeled on the U.S. terrorist watch list. Um, and then separate from that, 
you know, I remember when, when this issue of like terrorist content first showed up on, on YouTube, uh, you know, about a decade ago, and we had Senator, then Senator Joe Lieberman, who demanded that YouTube take down all sorts of videos, uh, claiming that it was supporting terrorists. This was probably pre-ISIS or, or maybe early ISIS. I don't, I don't even remember. Um, and, you know, YouTube under a lot of you know, political pressure and and press pressure caved and said, okay, we'll start taking down some of these videos. And what happened was like one of the first things they did was they shut down the YouTube channel of a human rights group in Syria that was documenting uh, war crimes and atrocities because it was the, the same videos, you know? And, and so you get to this point where it's like, one, you have the question of who is a terrorist and how is that determined? What is sort of due process is there? And then separately from that, like what is terrorist content? Because some of that content might be documenting war crimes and useful to reveal to the world what is happening. But that exact same video might be used in a propaganda video by the an organization for recruitment. And so you have all of these sort of very, very big questions. And if you're saying like, if you make a mistake on any of that, when it's not even clear what is the right thing, then you're putting so much pressure and weight on the companies to get that right when even, you know, the U.S. government isn't getting it right or, or you know, the public isn't getting it right. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's a really sort of important layer on all of this. And one of the reasons why, you know, I think the, the three of us on, on this podcast recognize the value of 230 and not having to make those judgments because you're going to make mistakes because mistakes are, are, are made in that process. So I think I think that's that's also worth calling out. Um, so let's let's get to the the actual hearing the the oral arguments. Um, what what happened in, in the court? It well, what happened took place over close to three hours, nearly. It was a very long oral argument, um, and it was argued by uh, the petitioners, by Google, and also by the U.S. government who took the petitioner's side, um, at least in the Gonzalez case. In the later Tamna case, they took the platform's side. Um, but in Gonzalez, they were arguing that um, essentially for the principle that algorithmic recommendation ended up um, being something that avoided Section 230's platform protections. I walked into the courtroom with zero optimism. I, I remember walking and thinking, you know, I, I actually, I texted Professor Eric Goldman. I said, it was nice, nice working on 2.30 with you right before I had to get rid of my, my phone. So I thought it was going to be the end of the world, or the end of the internet at least. Um, and I remember the very first question out of Justice Thomas's mouth. We all were sort of waiting for, because for, we thought this is the case, you know, his malware's, malware bites dissent, this is going to be the case. He's going to go in on 2.30. And he essentially asked, why is this in, our, in my courtroom? When he's, when he's asking, you know, what is the difference between when YouTube recommends me my rice pilaf cooking videos versus <laughs> ISIS content? And I remember, I, you know, I was, I was with some colleagues and we both look at each other shocked. Like, that's the heart of the entire argument. And he just, he seemed to just get it. Um, so that was, it was, it was surprising. I'm now cautiously optimistic after, you know, af after the arguments. Um, I think, one thing I super appreciated, I was really worried that this was going to be too technologically complex for the justices, mostly, again, because of the, you know, very narrow question that this turned into is, you know, rec some recommendations are okay for 230. But when algorithms and technology are involved and thumbnails and URLs, then all of a sudden 230 is, it's out of scope of 230. So 
But the justices seem to really push back. They seem to understand social media. You know, you've got Justice Amy Coney, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who immediately right out the gate is asking, well, how is this going to affect the users? Recognizing that 230 protects both websites and users, which often gets sort of read out of the rule in these conversations. She's right out the bat. She's like, well, if somebody, if, if what about somebody who retweets content? What's the difference between YouTube recommending a video that's up next and somebody retweeting third party content that's also sort of endorsing that content? Well, all these users uh, lose their 230 protections as well. So I thought it was, I don't know, I walked out cautiously optimistic, but also very appreciative that I think the justices here, they under, they, they at least understood what's at stake um, and and why Section 230 is, is important. I think they understood the basic, I was amazed at how educated they were. They understood a lot about the mechanics of the the law and how it worked. They also understood a lot about its impact. Um, and several justices, in particular, Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh, um, understood what the that it would have very significant effects on an awful lot. Um, that if if Section two hundred and thirty went away, it would be a really big domino that would be falling. That would have effect far beyond this case. Where maybe they weren't quite as confident is, you know, I think I think well-meaning people look at the bad things that happen on the internet and say, seriously, how can there be nothing for us to do? I mean, I think the answer to the question is there's not nothing for us to do. But, you know, you have to look around 230, look past it, because messing with 230 is not the thing to do. Um, but I think a lot of well-meaning people are like, well, if 230 allowed the internet to exist and the internet has bad things, then surely we must do something to Section 230 in, all, in order to fix the internet. And I think the justices still had that intuition that that was the math that might be applicable. But even to the extent that they do, and that would be a problem if it shows up in their the language of their decisions, I think they still understood that by and large, this is not something to be messed with. And I don't think we were expecting that. I think based on those dissents that we had been seeing, we were expecting a court with very invested in some significant misunderstandings about Section 230 and its of impact on the online ecosystem and expecting that they would just sort of, everybody would be arguing one myth after another. And it was I think a startling relief for all of us um, with the position that we share on this podcast to realize that, okay, it was actually, we weren't there. We weren't like dealing with misunderstandings. We were actually dealing with reasonable understandings and where do we go from there? Yeah. It, it was kind of interesting to me in, in that, you know, a couple of people pointed out that, you know, Clarence Thomas in, in particular has written a few different pieces kind of, you know, in, in various dissents that where this was not really the topic in which he just sort of raged about how awful Section 230 was and, and how it had to change. And, and one of the points that some of us had made when he did that was that he was doing that blind, right? Like, you know, completely unbriefed. And, and you know, the fear was that even after he was briefed, he would continue to go <laughs> yeah. down that path. But but what was interesting was it seemed like at least some of some of the briefs got, got through to him. Um, though I, I will note, like, it's interesting, you know, 
what we've just said here is that, you know, it seemed like they understood some of the nuances and some of the complexities and some of the things at stake, which is really important. But also, like, if you look at most of the headlines that covered how the case went, like, people really focused on the fact that the justices were confused and that, you know, Alito said he was confused and that uh, Justice Jackson said that she was confused. And uh, Five I forget different who else, somebody justices else. began with, let me make sure I understand your argument. I mean, I'm making a five, but it was a number of them that like were asking the questions and and I was sitting next to the press pen and there was a reporter in there who I think was new to the section. It wasn't a normal technology reporter. And I could hear her mutter under the breath of like, as the lawyer was arguing, but that's your whole case. And she was, she was getting confused by like, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and it's not holding together. I thought um, Justice Sotomayor, her line of questioning sort of at the beginning was was brilliant because she starts she's really picking up apart, you know, what exactly is the claim here? She's she sort of walks through she, she walks the petitioner through it. She goes, so you're not complaining about the actual videos and petitioner says no. Um, and you're not complaining about the search functionality of YouTube because that would be driven by third party input. And again, no, um, you're not complaining about YouTube's failure to take the videos down so she's she's sort of asking, like, so so what is it? What what is the claim here? And that's where we start to see. I think it was right around that time is when we start to see um, uh, uh, the lawyer Eric Schnapper sweat a little bit because um, again, what is the cl- <laughs> like? What is the actual claim here? And she said, "I'm going to be looking at your complaint," which was a relief because the problem with a lot of 230 jurisprudence and also. Uh, legislative efforts is it's so optics driven of I am upset, I am mad at something, and I'm going to take it out on Section 230, and you don't look at those details. And the pedantry behind law of like, those details matter. Law is driven or should be driven by you have a complaint and you have some facts to back up your complaint. And those facts taken together might or might not create a certain legal cause of action, which could impose liability. But this isn't something where it's like inherent. You have to argue every step of the way. And, um, you know, the diligence and the discipline that she was saying of like, it goes back to your starting papers, because even if hypothetically, the even if the justices liked the argument that um, that algorithmic amplification of user generated content should somehow bypass Section 230's protection, it is not clear that they like it in this case on the facts that were pled. And the way it was pled with those complaints, um, arguably, and I think based on what the the lawyer said, they could potentially replete at this point. But um, but it matters. Those details matter. They're not isolated. And especially as the justices are going to look at a question of law of such impact, I think they got to a position of like, this is a really big deal. And if we're going to start changing things up, is this really the situation in the case that should be driving us to do it because it just didn't act, seem very compelling to them that these particular facts that packaged up in this way just didn't seem like something that should upend the internet as we know it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious also separate from that, what, what was the government arguing and, and how did that go over? Uh, either one of you can take that. So there's a very long pause. Uh, The government has been struggling in a number of briefs to take 
positions that understand and advocate for the free expression at stake in these cases. Um, I think ultimately, and I think part of the, the, the hesitation here is it, the government argued a little bit more coherently than the petitioners did for the rule that algorithmic amplification should bypass Section 230, but only marginally. It's still an inherently flawed argument. It's just that the, I think it was, the, the government sort of, just in terms of delivering an argument, managed to deliver something that was a little bit more coherent. But I, I'm finding mm -hmm. myself not remembering all the details of what exactly they argued, because the ultimate problem was that is still not a good argument and taken to its logical conclusion, we're going to have some significant problems with the operation of the internet if Section 230 cannot act to protect the platforms in this sort of situation. And independently, it's extremely troubling that the United States government does not seem to recognize that and is calling for something that will be so destructive to online expression. Um, so with that sense of alarm, I don't know if I necessarily care what they argued in detail because <laughs> ultimately they were there arguing for something that if they got what they wanted, we would have a big problem. Yeah, I think that's probably actually why you got such a long pause from the both of us because I was sitting here thinking, you know, what what did they bring that was new to the conversation? I mean, <laughs> I think the ultimate, uh, what Kathy said, the, they really went in on the algorithm aspect of recommendations. And it, it that's exactly what their brief tried to do too. They, they you know, their brief was really interesting. They had, um, you know, uh, they championed section 230 for underlying content. They even championed it for, for some recommended content as well. But I think once we got down to the when that curation and recommendation is done with technology, i.e. algorithms, that's where the argument starts to fall apart. And you saw pretty much the same thing as what went down with the petitioner's arguments as well. Um, to me, the government's lawyer was, you know, got a little flustered with the questions because they're trying to draw an arbitrary line that is impossible to draw, in my opinion. Yeah, right. which is why it's hard to, re you know, I'm failing the quiz right now. It's hard to remember because it's easier to remember an argument that ultimately made sense and would be compelling. Um, and this one was sort of like, I hear what you're saying, but it, it's not going anywhere. This, this can't possibly work in the way that you're describing. And the problem with these arguments in general about Section 230 shouldn't cover this, shouldn't cover that, it should be narrow or something is, um, it's so particular, it's so focused on a particular situation that they have in mind, a particular use case, a particular thing that's wrong with the internet, it just misses the larger picture. And so it's, it's really hard to sort of credit those arguments because, because they're so limited and they're, they're just inherently flawed by being overly focused. Um, you know, we try and to listen and to see what they're, what they're bringing to bear, but um, all it is is bad stuff is happening on the internet and should, shouldn't we do something? Um, and perhaps in general, but that something does not mean messing with the expansive protection of Section 230. And then, in in regards to the the Google portion of the the arguments, um, was there anything that you heard that you know worried you, alarmed you on on, on that end of it? Yeah, I. I'm extremely worried about Google's endorsement of the Henderson test. I don't know if we want to get into that here, but that... Can we just give give a really quick, like, what is the Henderson test? Yeah, so um, the Henderson case that came up uh, sort of near the, the midpoint of the arguments uh, has to do with a, a FICRA complaint. And I'm 
not going to, I am not a FICRA expert, so I'm not going to try to go into the weeds there, but essentially it involves a website that curates publicly available data about people. Um, and I believe the plaintiff in that case uh, was suing that website because some of the curated data about that plaintiff um, was incorrect. So the question then was whether Section 230 applies to this data curation website um, when it's not really creating anything new. It's just compiling different sources of publicly available information um, and, and then displaying it. Uh, that's sort of where we get this pernicious Henderson test out of the Fourth Circuit, which is interesting because it sort of upends the Zoran precedents in a lot of ways. Um I've boiled the test. And just 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 for, for people who aren't as deep in the oh, weeds, yes. the Zoran test was really the, the first, I'll give you the really quick version, it was really the first sort of big Section 230 test case that sort of established the baseline of what Section 230 covers and that it is this sort of broadly applicable immunity for service providers. Right. And the Henderson in the same circuit, which kind of ignored that. Right, exactly. And so the Henderson is, I mean, I've heard a couple different explanation of how the test works. I've boiled it down to sort of two points here. The first one being that the test would reduce the publisher claims to ones that are limited to dissemination of information. So just when um, one person is publishing information to another person, and then based entirely on a website's publishing activities as it applies to, quote unquote, improper content. So I kind of took that test as meaning you know, they're trying, the, the court's trying to curve, carve back Section 230 publisher claims to just the dissemination of content, so are not content moderation activities. And only when the plaintiff is pleading um, that the content at issue is improper, which is ridiculous because Section 230C1, it doesn't say any improper content. It says any information right. provided by an ICP. So that's sort of the first part of it that's, that's super problematic. And then the second part of it um, has to go, I think, to, to uh, um, the causation. Um, it botches the roommate's test. So, you know, the roommate's test, it, it involves whether a service is materially contributing to the illegal content. If the service is, is found to be materially contributing to it, then they can sort of take on that, that first party content um, aspect and lose, you know, not be able to use 230. Um, here, they rearticulate that test, but then they say, Somebody can uh, a, a defendant can be liable. Um, they can have contribute contributive liability for publisher activities that go beyond quote unquote traditional editorial functions. So we you know very similar to the original question that was presented by the Gonzalez uh, uh, petitioner. Um, again, we have this sort of pernicious traditional editorial function language, which I think signals again. Um, Content moderation is, is sort of out of scope. The recommendations using algorithms to, to curate and display content, that doesn't fall under what, you know, a newspaper would do, for example. So if you're doing that, then that kind of can put you in the materially contributing test, uh, materially contributing issue from roommates and then possibly put you out of scope of 230. And 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 so and Google endorsed this Henderson test, which which I think came, three of us all think has, has problems. And because mm -hmm. what the justices end up doing as part of oral argument is sort of like assuming we we give you the W and you win, um, we got to write a decision. Help us write it. How do we say that you win here, and how do we write a test so that this is also usable for future courts, future judges um, to understand like. The, what is the logic we've imparted on this? And it was in that colloquy back and forth where 
they were trying to get answers and they were also trying the um, the next day to get answers from the Twitter lawyer as well of what is the test that we should use. And it was going around in circles. Um, but even with the, the Google one, that was that was the issue. How do we write this decision to say you win because and um, the Henderson uh endorsement came up at the end but um and then the justices themselves were actually like are you sure um because i think they'd read the briefs and realized that the henderson test is actually somewhat inconsistent with what a lot of the other amici are arguing so i'm hoping that you know that detail doesn't sink us and that they might recognize that and that they look for any other tests that are either available in other cases like from roommates in our brief we had sort of um gone back to the force b Facebook case from the Second Circuit, which although it didn't say this, I think they basically established a test for, well, who imbued the content in question with its allegedly wrongful quality, which I think actually is better than the material it contributed, because I think I worry about platforms that are kind of subject specific and subject specific in a provocative a subject matter where you're bringing mm -hmm. together people to talk about something contentious. So it is quite likely that something might end up wrong with the content that's going on that platform. But just because you've kind of convened users interested in that sort of discussion doesn't necessarily mean that you created it. And I worry that um, just the words materially contributed could too easily apply to that sort of situation. So I think we need to look ultimately past that and look at you know, somebody created the content in question, but it isn't even a thing about who created it because they try to say, well, if the platform made it possible for somebody to create content that they hadn't created before, well, then they're on the hook as co-creators because, but for the platform, the content would have been created. So you have to have something that's a bit more specific about something went wrong with the content that is causing a complaint. Um, and just even an alleged one, there might not actually be anything wrong right. with the content in question, but something went wrong with it. So who is the party who imbued it with this bit where somebody's now complaining about it? Um, and I think with that sort of test, you're not going to overly accidentally, artificially um, implicate the platform as a co-creator uh, because it's not um, that somebody else right. made it to be right. something that someone could compl would complain about. So, so I I do want to try and cover pretty quickly. I think this the second case we we focused on the Gonzalez case. Most of the attention has been on the Gonzalez case. The the Tamna case had very similar fact pattern: terrorist attack, someone died uh, in this case, and then then Twitter got got sued again. Sort of very loose connection to the actual crime. Um, but for some reason, the the Tamna v. Twitter case was not technically a two thirty case, right? And and even though these two cases sort of came up effectively together, they were decided in the same ruling in in the Ninth Circuit. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, Gonzalez became a two thirty case, and Tamna was not. So Tamna was more about whether or not Twitter was violating the I forget the what the the specific terrorist law is uh in in you know in effectively leaving up the you know terrorist content is is that is that a reasonable summary of the I think Tamna case I think so and I think uh, two sort of 
to add two points there because I was trying to decipher if both of the, I, I think at the end of the day, both of these questions were, were being argued during the oral arguments and they're important ones. I think the first one, the court was trying to decide whether Twitter can be liable for just provisioning their service and on the off chance that somebody who might be a terrorist might use their service, um, which is extremely broad. And then I think the second point they were trying to, to get to is if it is the knowledge aspect, which is because Twitter has community guidelines against terrorism type based content um, and Twitter has enforced those policies on folks who, you know, might be violating that, that rule, um, then Twitter has the requisite legal knowledge that ISIS slash other terrorists use their service, which goes back to, I mean, it blows my mind. It goes back to prodigy. This goes back to if you enforce, to say. yeah, you go back and yeah. you do content moderation, then you're liable for anything that you miss. Um, so I just, I remember kind of sitting there. Which, which is, which for, for anyone who doesn't know the history, that is the whole reason that we have section 230 was because of that case where they said, because you do some moderation, you're not liable for anything you leave up. Uh, and so th- there was this weird aspect to the Tamna case, which was basically like, this is the world without Section 230, even though we have Section 230. And and yet we got to see this sort of like, you know, parallel universe in, in the Tamna case. And in a, broad, in a broad stroke, I mean, one of the things is that Section 230, Section 230 is really important because ultimately it ends a lawsuit as inexpensively as possible. Um you're still going to have right. to pay a lawyer and they're still going to have to do something, but um, it is much cheaper and much quicker if Section 230 applies than if it doesn't. But that's not necessarily the end of the case because there still has to be a question of whether the complaint as put together could actually lead to liability. So if you didn't have Section 230 dispensing with the cases because you know it's third-party content um, – there are certain forms of secondary liability that can exist, and Tamna was exploring whether the, uh, the I believe it was the ATA, um, uh, the terrorist statute, could create that form of secondary liability right. that, let's say Section 230 is not there, um, then what happens? Can Twitter still be liable? Because it's also possible that the answer is no, where, okay, let's say we live in a world with no Section 230. That still does not mean that there can be secondary liability for Twitter for having provisioned the platform that a terrorist or terrorist-like people could use. And so that case right. was exploring, basically exploring whether that was true given um, the statute in question. Yeah, and 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 I think this is important because it's a point that 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 you raised in an article for us uh, a while ago with with regards to the roommates case. Now, the roommates case, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, but we didn't get into the details, and it's not worth it, was sort of a famous case in the Ninth Circuit in which the court determined that two thirty did not apply to certain elements of of the way that the roommates dot com website worked. Others it did protect. Um, and so a lot of people sort of remember that and think like, oh, roommates was not protected. And yet, you know, as, as you pointed out in a really useful article on, on TechTurk, Kathy, was that in the end, they still went through this you know, long cycle. And years later, roommates still won the case, even without Section 230. And it sort of becomes this very clear example of the benefit of Section 230, which is sort of getting rid of these cases that are going to lose anyways in a more expeditious manner. That is that is sort of the prime benefit of, of Section 230, um, rather than having to go through these extra years of you know really wasteful uh, litigation to get to the same Endpoint. Right. Roommates was, um, can you be, can the platform be liable 
liable for discriminatory um, posting ads for people looking for roommates. And the, what everyone does remember is the the, case, the parts of the case, the first part about Section 230, which was, well, if you help the user, if the user independently comes up with the discriminatory preferences, um, no, to Section 230 would apply. But if you helped prompt them into uh, communicating uh, prejudicial preferences that aren't um, you know, that they might not have done on their own, then you've kind of co-created it. And that's sort of where we're getting the material contribution test from. Um, but then, yeah, the the irony was after it got litigated for several more years at surely great expense, it turned out that in the area where Section 230 didn't apply, turns out no liability because um, they ended up finding that the rights of association and a roommate situation were so personal that yeah, you actually can be discriminatory in that context. So there was no case in the first place anyway. Um, but poor roommates had to go litigate that for years and years right. and years um, to then go back before the exact same judge who wrote the first decision. I think that's actually, that's the critical point here with the Twitter v. Tamina case. I, what I took away from watching those the, the oral arguments is that this case it foreshadows how internet litigation is going to look post-Gonzalez, whatever right. happens post-Gonzalez. That arguing back that the the... the in the weeds arguments about what aiding and abetting can be cons- when you when you have an online platform versus a bank, for example, the um, constructive knowledge standard. There was so much um, uh, uh, debate over the legal, the ambiguities with the legal uh, center or, or knowledge test that Section 230 just avoids, at least the C1 immunity avoids entirely. So every case, depending on what the court does, every internet law case could potentially look like a Twitter v. Tamina styled case. Right. So let, let, let's try and wrap up here. Um, and I kind of want to get your sense on, on what, not, no, no one can predict exactly what's going to happen, but, but when the rulings come out, which will probably be in June, which is what most people expect, um, what, what should people be looking for? What, what should be the key things to pay attention to in, in the eventual opinions in these two cases? I mean, I think that first there's a procedural issue about whether these cases will actually be fully adjudicated. Um, there, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that the court could say, "Oops, um, these case, neither right. of these cases were really worth uh, drilling into." Sorry, you, you know, all you people who did amicus briefs, but um, uh, there's enough issues with the Gonzalez case and with, um, and then following on the conditional grant of certiorari for the Tamina case, that these things in theory could go away with no judicial language whatsoever, which would create one scenario of what we end up playing out. Um, Because then on the downside, we get no clarity, but on the upside, we haven't actually broken anything today. Um, The issue is, I think neither case is going to I think the platforms are poised to win both cases. I think certainly for the Gonzalez one and probably also for the Tamna one, but it's not enough to get the W. You also have to get the decision and not have meandering uh, language hypothesizing (laughs) about other factual circumstances that weren't actually adjudicated and litigated and briefed in this particular case. So how how much my optimism and Jess's optimism is – is warranted really will depend on how disciplined the decision is Um, because uh, any language that starts musing about what might potentially be liable, it's just going to be a roadmap for every plaintiff's lawyer to start 
tailoring their cases to. So, I mean, if that happens, we're lawyers, we'll, we'll play the hand that we're dealt. Um, but I think basically, you know, my daydreaming is that the justices will give the platforms a W and double down on, and I really wish this had been argued more strongly in the Tamna case, that this is involving expression. And so any of the offline concerns about how we expect aiding and abetting laws to work or anything else to recognize that um, this is this is different and it needs to be handled uh, carefully because we're implicating ultimately First Amendment interests. Um, and that's what the Section 230 ends up vindicating. I'll tell you what I'll be looking for when the opinion comes out. I'm going to do a control F on neutral tools. That is what is keeping me up at night. I, you know, I think I agree with Kathy. I think the companies are are poised to win. But as I've been screaming about on Twitter, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not just about Google. This is about, you know, how they can, how the court might inadvertently undermine Section 230. And the one place I think that might, that may come up um, is this discussion about, uh, whether Section 230 only applies to new, quote unquote neutral algorithms um, or the use of non-neutral tools, and you know the idea behind that is 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 there there is no there there is no such thing as a neutral algorithm. Anytime somebody is you, right. anytime a service is using an algorithm to, to curate and display content, that's them showing their bias that they would prefer to promote that type of content. So um, adding a neutral standard, a, a neutral versus non-neutral standard. Um, it would it would again result in what we saw in Twitter v Tamina. We'd have to have a long winded discussion about what neutrality is when it comes to technology, and that's a conversation that is just primed for plaintiff abuse, in my opinion. Yeah, and and it, it's worth noting that 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 term neutral uh, tools or neutral algorithm or whatever came up a, a bunch of times um, in the in the Gonzalez hearing, and. You know, it was used in a way that that it, they didn't mean neutral tools. But if they if they use that term, then suddenly you have to litigate that. And I think it will it would it would certainly create a, a, a and it's huge not risk. in the statute. So this is something that's getting right. read in as well. Of course, the statute would have meant this, and it's and the authors of the statute who wrote their own brief are sort of like it means what we what we said. It's like <laughs> we we're pretty clear. Like you can't just sort of and this is the problem with. Um, a lot of Section 230 litigation, like judges have a case before them and they kind of want a result and they have to sort of like read the statute, however, would get them that result. But that's not supposed to be how it works. And it can't be how it works because this is implicating an ecosystem far beyond a particular case at hand. And it's very difficult, but this is the job of Amiki to help remind the court that this is a bigger thing affecting more people outside the contours of this particular case. And one upside with this case is there were a lot of amicus briefs and it sort of looks like the weight of that authority may have actually made a huge difference. And um, without like any particular amicus uh, author being singled out would bummer, you know, some of them, you know, brilliant Mastodon admins being brought to bear. Um, <laughs> but I think just even being in that pool of one of many voices saying, look what you are going to break, I think was uh, really seemed to impress, particularly on several of the judge of justices and possibly all of them, that there's something bigger than what is going on in this particular case. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, anyways, you know, we'll have to wait and see uh, what actually comes out of this. And, and then uh, I uh, 
assume that once we do find out what's happening, we will want to have you guys back on for another podcast, assuming that it is still legal for us to... Well, we'll need the talk <laughs> therapy session, if nothing else. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we'll see. But but thanks for, for taking the time. Uh, thanks for attending, going to DC, both of you, and and attending in person and, and seeing, seeing that happen. Um, and then for taking the time to join us on the podcast and have this discussion. It was uh, very enlightening for me, at least. Uh, so thanks to both of you. And thanks to everyone who is listening as well. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap.